Flint, Michigan. It was once an automobile manufacturing powerhouse for the world, the original home of General Motors. Nicknamed Vehicle City, it boasted 80,000 GM jobs in 1978. This is in a city with a population only twice that size. Flint was a triumph of the industrial age. Fast forward to 2019, and it's a beleaguered city that's been fighting a lethal water crisis for five years. Flint's is a story about strained resources, government cost-cutting, and ultimately the irreversible effects of lead poisoning of one of the nation's most struggling populations. It's a story about the environment and sustainability, but ultimately it's a story about management. Today we will explore the world of sustainability management. I'm Dr. Jason Wingard, and welcome to the Learn for Life podcast. The Learn for Life podcast, exploring the people, the skills, and the global forces driving change in our professional lives, with host Dr. Jason Wingard, Dean of the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, part of the Thought Leadership Series, Talks at Columbia. Sustainability management, an area that touches everything from urban environments and oceans and forests to small communities, national governments, and international financial systems. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Stephen Cohen, professor in the practice of public affairs at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs and senior vice dean and director of the sustainability management program at Columbia School of Professional Studies. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. So let's go back to our discussion about Flint. What have been the effects of that crisis? The crisis was caused, first of all, because the city's in under receivership and the governor of the state uh, had appointed somebody who decided to get a cheaper source of water, and they didn't really understand that that cheaper water was going to have a corrosive effect on the lead pipes. And lead has devastating impact on little children and their brain development, and that is the heart of the Flint water crisis. It raised awareness of this issue all over the country. Schools all over America are testing their water for lead, and it was Flint that led to that. So it was a sacrifice of horrible magnitude, but it also raised consciousness. So there are some critics of sustainability policy and the interest in making our society and our environment cleaner by saying that there are cities like Flint and like Pittsburgh and like Baltimore that were developed around manufacturing and, yes, polluting. But then when policy causes those industrial operations to shut down, what's left is people without work and cities without communities. So what would you say about how the United States cities that have been so focused on manufacturing and have been the largest contributors to what you were fighting against, what makes some of those cities rebound and do well, like Pittsburgh, and others, like Flint, continue to struggle? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, New York City was also a manufacturing city. Yes. After World War II, 47% of our GDP in the city was in clothing manufacturing. I worked in a bicycle factory when I was a teenager. Columbia has a building called the Studebaker Building, where our finance people are, which was an automobile factory. We had a vertical factory right here in West Harlem. So first of all, you need public policy. Remember, New York City almost went broke. We almost went under. The state of New York came in and saved us and helped us rebound financially. I think what happened in Flint and what's happened in some cities is that their states have not done what New York State did to New York City, which was come to our aid. But also, we need to make sure that people get the education they need. I mean, those factory jobs and those farm jobs are all becoming automated. And so the future really requires that people be skilled in the economy that's coming. 
which is a brain-based economy. It's part of government's responsibility, it's part of the community's responsibility to make sure that people aren't left behind in this economy. And interestingly enough, renewable energy and the green economy is a fast-growing place where there's jobs. So the same person that used to work in a factory could be installing solar arrays on somebody's roof. According to the United Nations Habitat, cities consume 78% of the world's energy and produce more than 60% of greenhouse gas emissions. And the UN is projecting that an additional 2.5 billion people will reside in urban areas by the year 2050. Steve, you often talk about sustainable cities, and I can understand why, given these statistics. Can you define what a sustainable city is? A sustainable city is one that uh, minimizes its impact on its surrounding environment, that recycles as much as possible, and uses as many renewable resources as possible. And so the issue of sustainability is related to the growth of population and our increased consumption of resources as we've gotten wealthier. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up in the 1960s, the planet had 3 billion people. Uh, but now, as you said, it's over seven and a half billion. Now we don't really know uh, where it's going to peak because there's this thing called a demographic transition, which is to say, as people get wealthier, they have fewer children. So in an agrarian society, when children are an economic asset, they work the fields, they're your social security, and also there's a lot of infant mortality and child mortality, you end up with families with seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 children if they're successful because children are an economic asset. asset right. Today, children are an economic liability. I have two daughters, I love them very much. But all the income flow is going in one direction, and it's never coming back. <laughs> never coming back. Until and, the end of life. And, then and, maybe, maybe. Maybe. And so that's really a, a very effective form of birth control. And so you have what's called, in developed societies, a demographic transition, where, in fact, places like Japan and Western Europe, and even in America, if it wasn't for immigration, we wouldn't be replacing our population. And so it's not really clear where the Earth's population will peak. But what is clear is that we have to figure out a way to make sure that our high throughput economy and our consumption doesn't destroy the environment that provides us with the resources that we need for water and food uh, and air. And I strongly believe we can do that because I've actually seen the beginnings of it uh, in the environmental era. The air and water in New York City today is cleaner than when EPA was created in 1970. And that's because of a whole host of public policies that we developed in the 70s and 80s that we put into effect since then. So policy has allowed us to be successful. And so there's reason for optimism. That's, that's good. So how is sustainability incorporated into organizational strategy? Are there examples of companies that do this well, Steve? One of the best companies in the world is actually Walmart. So Walmart is taking those big roofs on those big box buildings and they're putting solar power on it, because mm -hmm. solar power, once you get the capital installed, uh, the energy's free. Uh, nobody charges you to use the sun. So that's one thing they do. The other thing they do, which is even more interesting, is they require their entire supply chain. Everybody that sells something to Walmart has to demonstrate uh, the sustainability of their supply chain and their product. And they're doing it not because they care about the green on the trees, they care about the green in your wallet. Uh, it turns out, that it's a lot more cost-effective to sell sustainable goods than goods that have lots of waste in it. Wasted energy, wasted product just happens to be more cost-effective. One of the classics in that is they no longer sell detergent that isn't concentrated because someone in their accounting department discovered that they're basically renting out their shelf space to their suppliers. 
And a concentrated detergent takes up a lot less space than a detergent that has a lot of water in it. And so they were basically marketing and paying for the water, which nobody needed. They could just turn on the tap and get it. So Walmart has taken that kind of philosophy throughout everything they sell, and uh, they're really, really good at it. Your very early academic career was spent studying political science. You earned your undergraduate, master's, and doctorate degrees in the subject. At some point, you started to focus on how political and environmental issues are intertwined. Can you tell us about that evolution? What led to your interest in sustainability? It actually started with uh, New York City nearly going broke in 1974. And what had happened uh, when, as I was growing up in New York City is that uh, there was an exodus of people and businesses to the suburbs. Uh, and as a Brooklynite, I hated suburbs and I hated sprawl. And I wanted to understand why it was happening. And when I ended up in graduate school, uh, the closest I could come to a course that was dealing with that was a course on environmental politics. Uh, it was offered by uh, one of my mentors, Lester Milbreath. And uh, in the fall of 1975, I walked into his class. And in some ways, I've never walked out of it. So it's interesting. So Columbia University here has done a phenomenal job thus far, and we're looking to do more with respect to academic scholarship and research and teaching on sustainability management and economics and finance, uh, as you just alluded to. How are we as a university, though, what grade would you give us in terms of our sustainability practices? One of the problems Columbia has is this very old campus. And so uh, these are landmark buildings. When they had to rebuild the faculty house and the president's house, they basically had to rebuild the buildings from inside hmm. uh, and leave the facades up. But when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it with LEED certification for the energy and with uh, much more water efficient. And the buildings are, in fact, uh, much more sustainable than what they replaced. But each of those buildings cost $40 million to replace. So the cost is very high. The new campus that is being built is all being built according to sustainability principles. And at Lamont, uh, which is part of the Earth Institute, uh, they now buy their power from a solar energy supplier. So there are lots of things you can do. Columbia is trying very hard to do it, but we're limited by what you can do within an urban environment on an old campus. Hmm. So you give us a, a passing grade, uh, I, 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 more I, work to be done. And, and an E for effort. <laughs> and an E for effort. <laughs> there you go. Um, Steve, what does your field look like in 10 years or, or even 15 years projecting into the future? One of the interesting things I think that's starting to happen is, first of all, young people are really interested in this field. In fact, if you go into a major corporation or a nonprofit, uh, it's the young people who are pushing senior management to pay attention to climate risk and to energy and to all of the aspects of sustainability. So sustainability is becoming part of our culture. Mm. Uh, it's becoming part of how people live. It's part of their lifestyle. And so the knowledge base to make a more sustainable economy, the technology, the use of that technology in our day-to-day -day practices uh, creates all sorts of educational demand. And I think we're going to see uh, more and more evolution of the field. I've seen it since I got started. I originally thought of environmental policy as regulation of government of business. And now I'm just as interested in how do you change the organizational practices of businesses from within, which is really where the action is right now. It's interesting that you mentioned the interest of young people uh, in this particular field. We're doing a lot of research at the school level on the future of work. And one of the things we found is that millennials in particular are very, very interested in causes. They want to focus on causes, whether it's immigration or same-sex marriage policy, but uh, climate change and sustainability policy is something that they're very interested in. So we'll see 
see them pushing for a lot of change in the corporations, as you suggest. I think people want to have a sense of purpose. You know, it's a sense in evolution. When my grandfather came here from Russia, to him work was about bread. He was a baker uh -huh. and making money. And my father was worked in a corporation. He was a corporation president. He wanted a higher form of self-actualization. Yeah. I want an even higher form of it. And so, and my children, I'm, I'm sure, will think that I'm, a, you know, an artifact of some earlier era. <laughs> I'm so sure. So I do think I do think that that's really what's happening. People, and also the technology is changing the kinds of jobs you have. That's right. You know, when I worked at the Earth Institute and in, in the School of Professional Studies, we have events managers. Yeah. That's a profession that didn't exist 20 years ago. And so we're seeing more and more people doing jobs that literally didn't exist, where the jobs of the past, the manual labor jobs in factories, and you know, they're largely disappearing uh, as we evolve to a brain-based economy. Mm -hmm. And I think for a university, that means that our role becomes ever more important. Absolutely. So Steve, let's do a deeper dive into this younger group, the millennials, the post-millennials, uh, the people who are 35 years and under. They represent more than 40% of the U.S. population. What advice do you have for upcoming executives, representative of this millennial group, who want to transform their companies into organizations that have both a profit and a social mission, alluding to what we just talked about? We know increasingly that you can do well and do good. And the idea that somehow the corporation is the enemy of, of public good is really not the way people are thinking anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that capitalism without regulation works. You need to have rules, you need to have laws, but you also need to have purpose-driven organizations. And I think that that's what attracts the smartest people. I mean, what's happening in the world economy now is that it's really a global competition for brain power. And that's one of the reasons why immigration is so important and why a city like New York, where 40% of the people who live here were born in other countries, is such an important place. That's why Amazon wants to be here. That's why Google wants to be here. They want to draw on the best brains. And so part of what I, I say to young people is educate yourself to be a lifelong learner. Don't worry about whether you know how to do coding and all the technical skills. I mean, I learned uh, how to do computer programming in graduate school, and everything I learned became useless within five years. Mm -hmm. But the concepts and the thought processes that went into learning how to learn have stayed with me forever. And so I think what I would say to young people is, yeah, you'll need those skills for your first job. But then what you really need to do is have an attitude toward learning where you're really open to new ideas and new knowledge and understanding that, if anything, the world's changing faster and faster and faster. So let's connect on that point you made about New York being a place that's a hub for the big brains. When students from around the world, applicants, I should say, from around the world are interested in your program, the Sustainability Management Program, what do you tell them about what they will learn, about how valuable it will be to their career, about the value of both Columbia and New York City. What do you say to our listeners and to prospective students about what it will be like coming to this program and then advancing in their careers? Well, I think Columbia is defined by its excellence. It is one of the top universities in the world. It cares a lot about quality. And so if you have a Columbia degree and you go out on the job market with it, you have what I call the presumption of competence. People assume you're smart. And you know, nine out of 10 times, they're right. And so your resume gets put in the right pile. So just being a Columbia student and graduate gets you that. But the other thing it gets you is access to a community of people who are like you. They're the people who are basically running the world. And in the case of sustainability, 
what I believe is that uh, the field of management, which has been evolving through the 20th century into the 21st century, you know, the development of mass production, of accounting, of information management, of the global economy, all of those things happen in the 20th century. In the 21st century, it's really about how do we make sure that we continue to grow our economy while maintaining the quality of the planet. And this is a, a school, it's a program where you're going to learn how to do that. And I've, I've seen that in, my, in, in New York City itself. A great example would be the Hudson River. Until 1983, New York City dumped raw sewage into the Hudson. There's a reason why Riverside Drive is a quarter mile from the river. Because on a hot summer day, you wouldn't want to get too close to it. But now, you can walk right along the river. And in fact, all that real estate up and down the west side has become incredibly valuable because the quality of that water and that environment has improved. So the idea that environmental quality is just a cost and not a benefit is ridiculous. And that's part of what we've learned about the environment. And in the case of management, if you think about your organization and of pollution as a form of waste, or the use of more energy than you need, or you produce garbage and the garbage in the service business and the garbage costs you, you know, $100 a ton to get rid of. If I can cut that in half, that's savings. That means I can compete more effective globally. So the environment is a, a critical part of your cost structure in a way that in the 1960s and 70s, maybe it wasn't, or at least people didn't think of it that way. So my last question would be relative to governmental policy. So in the U.S. or in China, you pick the country, what would be your wish for a change in policy that would have a dramatic impact on our society? I think the central sustainability issue is getting from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And so that anything government can do to facilitate that. Chuck Schumer had a proposal uh, in the Senate to subsidize electric cars and charging stations, a kind of cash for clunkers program. Things like that would be very helpful. Anything that helps us build the infrastructure for electric charging for automobiles. I mean, in, this, in New York City, most of our greenhouse gases come from buildings. But in most of the United States, it's from transportation. And so the single most important thing to do in this country to get to sustainability is to get off of fossil fuels and to renewable energy for motor vehicles. Well, Steve, that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. You are certainly transforming the field of management. I'm going to try to restate the main takeaways from today's conversation. Uh, here's what I heard you say. Number one, investing in sustainable cities is crucial to a sustainable future. Number two, to transition off of hazardous single-use resources, a sophisticated partnership between the public and private sectors is needed. And number three, organizational management has the power to help or harm the environment, public health, and economies throughout the world. How management handles sustainability is central to survival. Again, Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Learn for Life podcast, part of the thought leadership series, Talks at Columbia, hosted by Dean Jason Wingard the author of Learning to Succeed, Rethinking Corporate Education in a World of Unrelenting Change, and Learning for Life, How Continuous Education Will Keep Us Competitive in the Global Knowledge Economy. We want to hear from you. Tweet your questions using the hashtag Talks at Columbia, and we'll answer them on future episodes. For more information about Talks at Columbia and the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, visit sps.columbia.edu.